phenomenon known as Geist appeared on the Bureau's radar after a U.S. Army intelligence report surfaced, detailing accounts on leaps of technology in the fields of reconnaissance and counterterrorism. The ability to allow a soldier to walk through enemy lines unscathed caused even the most hardened detractors to the ethical ramifications of this experiment to look the other way. Since then, several reports of bodies being recovered as mounds of flesh have begun to surface. Corpses discovered with their bones turned to dust, their organs blended into a fine paste without seemingly a mark on them. A Bureau field team was put to task to retrieve the entity, culminating in a raid into the Appalachian foothills ten years ago. Ten agents were sent, none returned. This report has been taken from the resurfaced 1969 experiment document, as well as the account of one Dr. David O'Connell, a geneticist that worked on the project. Listen carefully and take heed, for knowing your enemy is half the battle. I'm not sure what will happen to me after I blow the whistle on this. I'll no doubt be labeled a traitor, forced into hiding before they find me in a pool of my own blood and determine my cause of death was suicide by tripping and falling onto a bullet. But the world needs to know. You need to know. The world isn't safe. I'm not talking about some ancient alien beast that can devour a manhole. That's too simple for the way this thing works. I'm talking about the complete derailment of government infrastructure at its very core foundation. A total widespread anarchy that we are powerless to identify, let alone stop. I only wished I could have foreseen the ramifications of our actions as we strapped Private White into that chair, crying and begging us not to all those years ago. Please, please, no, no. It was the height of the Vietnam War. The US, for all our bloat and bluster, was taking heavy casualties by the North Vietnamese Army, as well as the insurgent forces of the Viet Cong. We struggled for years trying to break their code, trying and failing to make sure our boys on the front lines got home safe. What other things have been happening in the world today? Early attack is getting an infusion of new blood. Got to go. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Eventually, Washington had had enough. Tonight I want to talk to you on a subject of deep concern to all Americans. The war in Vietnam. They looked towards other means of warfare. Now let me begin by describing the situation I found when I was inaugurated on January 20. Meta-science that had yet to be tested. That's where they found me. The war had been going on for four years. 31,000 Americans had been killed in action. 
the training program for the South Vietnamese was beyond schedule. I was contracted to find a way to modify a soldier's skin cells in such a way to allow them to blend in with their natural surroundings. 540,000 Americans were in Vietnam with no plans to reduce the number. Like a chameleon, the soldier would end up adapting to the natural pigmentation of their environment at will. The thought was that if we could have someone close to the areas we suspected the enemy to be, they would be able to relay movements back to commanders who would position and deploy troops accordingly. No progress had been made at the negotiations in Paris, and the United States had not put forth a comprehensive peace proposal. I hastily accepted the contract, partially out of national pride and wanting to see the young men ripped from their homes return more or less in the same state in which they left. The large sum of research money didn't hurt to open my eyes to the project either. We traveled to the forests of Kentucky, about 100 miles outside of Fort Knox. There, the Pentagon had set up a base of operations for us. We started by surveying the local rank and file of our location. We probed medical files looking for soldiers that no one would miss, troublemakers that didn't fit in, conscientious objectors, an orphan or single child with deceased parents that no one would come looking for should this project go awry. Eventually, we found a group of 10 unwilling and unknowing subjects. They had been assigned to us under the pretenses of an advanced medical screening. I didn't bother learning their names in the early stages of testing. With the amount of chemicals and stimulation we were going to be putting them through, I had surmised that no more than two were going to make it out of the trial stage alive. I was happy to be wrong on that account as, after two months, we had three subjects still standing. There was Lieutenant Erickson, a well-built man of about 30. He had just finished his medical degree when he commissioned and took post as a medic with the local regiment here. Sergeant Morris was a strong African-American man, enlisting out of an orphanage in 62. He was here as a point of pride, as his subordinate, a meek and malnourished Private White, had been assigned here as well. White was a short boy, no more than 18 years old. A conscientious objector from Minnesota, he was ostracized by his peers, assigned the post of a glorified janitor. He was hardly going to be missed. I still remember the day that we had begun our first full run. It was overcast the whole week prior, but today a dark ocean of clouds formed on the horizon. A thunderstorm and flash flood warning was in effect. The guard detail with us took precautionary measures, sealing us inside of our research lab with a thick iron door. I didn't know it then, but this complex would soon become a tomb. Whatever bravado that had ensconced the soldiers' faces at the start of the trials had faded long ago. Seeing your compatriots scream and thrash as viscous chemicals were glazed onto their subdermis will evoke that emotion in a man. Yet somehow the trio persevered, cursing at us with an unending barrage of swears and insults as we walked into the room. Now, now, I said as I walked over, checking the vitals of Morris. His dark skin had begun to turn translucent. The blue veins that had hid under his skin were in full view as they wrapped around the muscle. I watched as he tried to lash out at me, causing the restraints we had put them in to creak. You piece of shit, let us out. This is illegal. You'll fry for this. He spat at me. I could see the fibers of the muscle stretch and tear slightly at their own power. Another side effect of the experiment. 
he didn't feel a thing. We had numbed the pain sensors of the brain a few days prior. A little reward for making it this far. Careful now. Though you can't feel it, you are under extreme bodily stress. This should take some of the tension off, I said as I injected him with a powerful horse tranquilizer. The amount we were using was enough to kill a man twice over, but to them, it felt more like a shot of morphine. I walked over to Erickson next. On the outside, he was about the same as the man prior, though personality-wise, was the opposite of Morris. He looked at me silently with his glassy, regretful eyes as I checked his vitals and marked them on my sheet. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. What is horror to you? Monsters? Murder? Mystery? Well, if human monsters are your thing, June's Journey is the game for you, albeit in a more lighthearted tone. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. White was the last one I checked. It was interesting watching him transform the most, if I'm being honest. When he was first brought in and strapped down, he wept. He kept telling us he was sorry for whatever we thought he did, that he would be better. He begged us not to do whatever we were going to do to him. Naturally, we ignored his calls for mercy. I believe it was then that the first seed of homicidal intent began to take root in his brain. A seed that we carefully and unknowingly cultivated over the span of several months. Looking back, as I stood there next to him, I didn't know that he would become the monster I feared so much, but I knew I had created one all the same. Out of the three, he had shown the most promising advancement. His entire being was near translucent, not just his skin. I could nearly see the table he was strapped to through his stomach if I stared long enough. The only thing that stood out was his mouth. We were still working on making the teeth clear, so I got to see every one of them through his cheek as he spoke. You know, Doc, he began speaking in a calm, raspy, monotone voice. The second I get out of this, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna tear your spine out from your back and play jump rope with it. 
I'm gonna rip your jaw from its socket and use it for an ashtray. I'm gonna make you regret the day you were ever born. Then I'll do the same to everyone you have ever cared for. That's a promise. Something about his tone made me sure that he meant it, yet I still paid it no mind. Keep that attitude once you get to the front, and the war will be over thanks to you. I responded with a smile before retreating back to my station, now sequestered behind a wall of plexiglass. There were only a few people in the room with us when the experiment began. Richard Cromwell was a colleague of mine, well-versed in the dual studies of genetics and human anatomy. I brought him along as a second opinion while we ran these trials. Other than him, there was my research associate, Michael Lear, a grad student from Harvard that I had met in 67. He was our recorder documenting everything going on as part of his internship before I signed off on his doctorate. Other than them, stood a few rank-and-file guards with us in case anything went awry. Are we ready? Richard asked. He was a man nearing his fifties, hair turning white and thinning at the top. His thick, square-framed glasses hung low on his long, crooked nose. I remember always teasing him, saying that he looked how I would imagine Dr. Jekyll would if his vices were fast food and alcohol, instead of simple violence and debauchery. We are. Prepare to administer the gas. We had made a compound mixture of iodine, sodium hydroxide, and an iron oxide solution. The theory was that, when inhaled as a gas, it would mix with the various other chemicals we had filled the subjects with, either giving them complete invisibility or causing the chameleon mutation we had initially hypothesized. Either outcome was advantageous as far as I was concerned. Gas ready to be administered, doctor, Michael said, turning to me. He was a tall man, around 6'2 and skinny as a beanpole. His long black hair was often kept back in a ponytail, which I had often chastised him about cutting. That type of appearance had no purpose in the field of science. Very well, begin the experiment. I watched as a thick blue smoke began to envelop the room. Turn on vital monitoring, I said to Richard, who turned a knob on the board in front of us, bringing up three distinct EKG monitors on the screen to our right. Now we watched and waited. We heard the screaming after a few minutes. Regardless of the drugs, of how numb they had become to pain, the subjects were letting out cries of agony. The heart rate spiked dramatically, blood pressure beginning to drop. Low blood pressure warning. Then the thrashing began. Sounds of the tables being tossed on their sides. I looked over at Michael. The poor boy looked panic-stricken as he tried to reach for the shutoff valve. Sir, we have to stop this. The subjects are dying. My hand instinctively reached up and gripped his wrist, tossing it away. Now is not the time to grow a conscience, Michael. Think of the progress. With ten lives, we could save thousands. You touch that valve, and you will never work in this field a day in your life. His face sank when I delivered my ultimatum. Slowly, he pulled his hand back and gave me a slow nod of obedience. I was distracted by his outburst, so when Richard told me that we had lost Erickson, I was put in an even worse mood. Damn it, keep pressing forward. Thirty more seconds, then shut off the valve and be ready for examination. I turned to the vitals monitor. Erickson had flatlined completely. Morris's heart rate was steadily rising. His adrenaline must have been kicking in. That or his voice had gone out as his screams became ever-increasingly muted. It was when I looked over at White's that I gave pause. His heart rate wasn't rising. It had barely moved. All his vitals looked like a man at rest. 
It was as I looked at the monitor that I began to hear something cut through Morris's cries of anguish. It was white. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't crying either. No, the man was laughing. Laughing with a hysterical, maniacal tone. It chilled me to my very core as my hand slowly and shakily went to the shutoff valve. Morris is gone too! Richard exclaimed as my eyes remained fixed on White's monitor. I glanced for a moment at the screen, to the window, to my hellish creation. I slammed the gas valve shut and waited in disturbed silence. We all did. We stood there for minutes, being tortured by White's incessant cackling. Eventually, the smoke cleared and I got a glimpse at the terror unleashed by my hand. Two of the tables had been bent at odd angles, tossed like a child's plaything around the room. Erickson and Morris lay there dead. Erickson's corpse was bloated to the size of a bear, viscous blue liquid slowly oozing out of his ears, eyes, and mouth. Morris looked a little better, still maintaining his well-built shape as he laid against a wall, spread eagle, his head turned towards the window, the swollen, blackened discs that were once his eyes staring back at me, judging me for what I had done. I looked over in White's direction. His table was still upright, unmoved, yet. Where is he? Where the hell is White? Richard let out a cry as we all realized the same conclusion. His mouth was gone, his restraints snapped. We tried scanning the room, but our vision was blocked by a thick white mist that clung tightly to his table, a single strand stretching high to the ceiling. Turn the fans on, I demanded. We need to clear this mist before going in. It's no doubt toxic to us. Sir? Michael piped up, looking meek and fearful. The fans have been on. <laughs> it was then I heard the laughter again. It started softly, annoyingly low like a fly buzzing in my ear. Then it became louder and louder. So loud to the point that it felt like White's maniacal laughter was permeating every inch of the complex. Find him, I shouted, struggling to see as the mist began to grow and twist itself into a long, single strand. Hiya, Doc. White's disembodied voice rang out from everywhere and nowhere at once. How do I look? My eyes went wide with terror as I looked on at the mist, shifting and curing into a semblance of a face. It was White what he had become, what I had made him. I was speechless, unable to move or think as the guards behind me started to make their way in. No, don't, was all I managed to get out before they stepped into the room, slamming the door shut behind them. Instantly, they were set upon by the mist. It shoved itself into the man's nostrils as he screamed in both pain and terror. I watched as his body thrashed and twitched heard his bones being broken, watching them poke against the skin and around his face as white ravaged his insides. After a moment, the man stood there, still and lifeless. The other guard approached his comrade before the man grabbed him and, with tremendous strength, jerked his head 90 degrees backward. His spine showed through the skin as he was hurled against a wall by white his body hitting the concrete with a meaty thwack before falling to the ground in a small pool of his own blood. I watched in horror as White, now completely in control of the guard, 
walked in front of the window and looked at me. I stood still in terror. Richard and Michael rushed to the exit, trying in vain to attempt to be let out. But it did no good. We were locked in here for our safety. Knock, knock. The guard's voice echoed out, shakily and unnatural in its pitch, before he shoved his fist through the plexiglass. The last image that I saw before passing out was him shattering the glass entirely, jumping inside the room and grabbing me, all the while looking at me with that same crazed smile. It was a few hours before I woke up. Save for the subjects in the other room as well as the guard, I was alone. It took me a moment to get my bearings and remember where I was. Once I did, I quickly rushed to the exit. Thankfully, the storm must have passed as the door was unlocked. I made haste to the parking lot, looking around and seeing the now empty complex. For whatever reason, it was a ghost town. No guards, no researchers, just a small, abandoned base in the middle of the woods. I got in my car and drove off, never looking back. It's been 45 years since that day and I have lived each and every one like it's been my last, and it very well could be. In closing, I wish for you to know two things. One. There is something out there, something intangible and evil, something that was the creation of a man driven by greed and an unchecked lust for knowledge. It can't be tamed or killed in any way, shape, or form. I don't know what it was that Private White turned into that day, but I know that on that day in 1969, we killed three men and gave birth to one monster. The second thing that I want you to know to keep dear to your heart and have burned into your soul is that I kept my promise to the good Dr. O'Connell. Phenomenon 1969 remains at large. A raid of Dr. O'Connell's home was initiated in 2015. The only thing that was found was the boneless mass of the doctor, slumped in his chair, with this document still brought up on the computer screen. An autopsy by Redwood researchers revealed his bones had been crushed, his muscles torn to shreds, and every organ churned into a thick gelatinous sludge. Hypothesis has been made that 1969, while taking control of a person, still occupies the mass of his previous form, causing severe internal hemorrhaging, effectively killing the host the second he takes control. Naturally, the Bureau has great interest in the capture and study of 1969, hoping to utilize his incorporeal nature for its espionage benefits to further their malicious intentions. RPP report 1969 deactivated. I'm Josh Tomar, host of Redwood Bureau. Thank you for listening. Redwood Bureau is a horror fiction podcast and part of the EerieCast podcast network. For more dreadful terrors, follow Redwood Bureau on Spotify and iTunes, and check out our other podcasts like Unexplained Encounters and Freaky Folklore on your favorite podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Twitch under username Tomamoto, T-O-M-A-M-O-T-O, and my voiceover is featured in a wide variety of your favorite video games, anime, and other animated shows. Until next time, don't forget... This world is a strange one. Phenomenon 1969.